This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. It is BFM 89.9. Good afternoon and welcome to Enterprise BizBytes. My name is Rich Bradbury. It's Monday, the 6th of November, 12.05 here in the studio. In an era marked with increasing environmental concerns and a growing awareness of our planet's finite resources, the fields of design and architecture are undergoing a profound transformation. Sustainability has emerged as a guiding principle inspiring designers and architects to reevaluate their traditional practices and embrace innovative, eco-conscious approaches. Sustainability in design and architecture is not merely a passing trend, but a fundamental shift in the way we envision and create our built environment. This shift recognizes that our buildings and the spaces we inhabit have a significant impact on the planet. And the pursuit of sustainable design principles is an essential step toward a more harmonious and responsible coexistence with our natural world. Today, we'll be delving into the significance of sustainability in design and architecture, explaining its key principles, its benefits, and the role it plays in shaping a brighter, more environmentally conscious future. If you have any thoughts, you can WhatsApp our U mobile number at 018-789-8899, or you can reach out to us on X, we're at BFM Radio. To learn more about what we're discussing, I'm here in the studio with Lillian Tay, the Vice President of the Veritas Design Group. Lillian, welcome to the show. Thank you, Richard. Happy to be here. Thank you for inviting. I'm so glad to have you here with me, having uh, this uh, discussion today. Now, let's start off, I guess, with... Um, the very basic question, and for people who might not know at home, what is sustainability in architecture and how does it differ from traditional design? Uh, well, Richard, I would like to first say that um, there is a lot of sustainable design strategies embedded in many of our traditional building practices. Mm. Uh, out of necessity, people have built, you know, in response to the sun exposure, uh, water erosion, if you're by the river, uh, there is um, long-standing uh, common sense, common mm. sense practice. Uh, and um, what I think we are doing today is to uh, of course, put metrics to it such that it's more quantifiable and you can achieve higher level uh, of sustainable design. Mm -mm. When we discuss it today, though, I mean, it's okay saying that we, we know if we look around at traditional structures here in Malaysia, they were designed with sustainability in mind. But nowadays, when we, we talk about sustainability in, in design and architecture, is it any different? What are we doing differently? Um, well, I think we have many more building types, Yeah, for instance. Uh, one particular one certainly would be high-rise yeah. construction because you build so much in one project. I think the imperative for it to be designed and engineered uh, in a sustainable manner to have uh, um, you know, low energy uh, usage over the, its long-term, its, its lifespan, mm. uh, that's, that's very important. Um, so the, there is um, a need. Uh, I think it is good to quantify that because just because the numbers are so large, you right. know, uh, one small lapse and it just um, incrementally multiplies so much. Um, I don't think the strategies are that, that um, uh, you know, they, they are not specific or customised. Uh, there's lots of, um, uh, there's been a lot of progress in Malaysia with, with uh, the uh, GBI, which is the Green Building Index that was um, uh, formed in 2009 and then Green Re uh, by Radar following that. Mm. Uh, I think there's a 
lots of consciousness mm. uh, of of uh, choosing the right materials, uh, materials that perform better in the climate that we have with a lot of sun exposure. Uh, and architects too uh, um, are also now uh, more um, familiar uh, with, with the choice of uh, not just forms, but also the materials mm. that's selected. For instance, glass, there's a lot of high-performing glass uh, that's that's. Uh, performing much better than glass that we had 20 years ago uh, mm. and more affordable. Mm. Uh, I think even the um, financial challenges that we first faced in the early part of, um, of, of implementing green design in, uh, after 2009, uh, I think are less so today. You know, the cost of making your building green, green certified, uh, not just green, so that you have uh, specific metrics, can be anything... Um, like 1% more of what you would spend on the construction, let's say, for Green Re basic rating right. or GBI. Uh, and, and for if you wanted to go for the platinum, the highest performance uh, could be maybe 6 7 8% of what you would other already spend. Right. Um, I think now the, the last uh, uh, 10, 10, 15 years, um, I think there's been a lot of... Uh, uh, corporate, uh, and I think the you know, our corporate clients have have embraced this well, uh, and the incentives from the banking sector has been very important, mm -hmm. very important, of and course. I hope that there should be more uh, to encourage uh, 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 our developers right. um, to to for for developers to build green buildings, uh, and perhaps it should even extend to purchases, you know, loans uh, for purchases right, right. if they are choosing to buy to a green building, a green rated yeah, building. Yeah. Perhaps that's that one more step that can happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's that's a lot of it um, going on. How do we then? Um how can sustainable design principles be integrated into the architecture of, of a new building fr from the start? How do we ensure it happens right at the very beginning? Okay, uh, that that I think is the uh, the pivotal role of the architect right on from day one. For instance, um, we, we focus on high density because mm. the the mesh, uh, the impact is is greater rather than let's say a, a home. Yeah. Um, the orientation, uh, for instance, immediately you try not to have too much uh, windows to the uh, morning and afternoon sun. Actually, people actually tend to think it's the afternoon sun that is uh, that is the 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 evil. But actually, it, the morning sun is just as important. For instance, perhaps a lot of people don't realize that if you don't look at the data, for instance, because we have like 110 rainy afternoons in a year out mm. of 365 days. Mm. So whereas we don't have had hardly any rainy mornings. Mm. So the annualized exposure, for instance, from having a lot of eastern exposure is, is very high. You see, um, whereas back in the UK, when, I, when we were looking at houses, we'd look for a south-facing window so that we have more light because obviously in the UK it, it's quite dim and gloomy sometimes, right? Mm, yeah. yeah, yeah. So same, but we we have to pay attention to both east and west here yeah, yeah. because traditionally, uh, you know, everyone doesn't want a west facing because that's when they feel the heat. So the natural response is to think about addressing the west facing. Mm. But and and in the city with the high rise, you know, views are very important. Mm. People, I mean, views give a lot of uh, pleasure. I think yeah. to anyone in a building, whether it's your workplace or your living room, um, and sometimes you need to balance that. Uh, if if your building, for instance, the best view is towards the east. 
and the West, of course, you would want to maximize the, the windows uh, to, towards that. But then you'll have to um, mitigate that by having sun shading uh, and or having balconies. Those mm. are the traditional, most uh, you know, most idiot-proof uh, solutions <laughs> that that people have been using for a long time. Yeah. Uh, and and that uh, our you know sort of architecture design should should not sort of think that that's that's old school or anything. Mm. Uh, it is very sensible, and I I don't think uh, you know good sense, uh, good um, good sensible design mm. uh, should should not be too driven by forms. For instance, you know a preference for certain form, look, and aesthetic. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's one thing um, you need to mitigate that because. Um, very often your your views may be not on the preferential thing. You, on the other hand, don't want to be so driven by sustainable design uh, guidelines that you then deprive, I mean, not deprive, but don't take advantage of, of uh, views because, mm. you know, the, they, they give a different type of satisfaction. For to, sure, for sure. Yeah. So when we're looking at um, building, a, uh, constructing a new building, or, or you know, what, what are the kind of key considerations when you take eco-friendly materials, you know, um, and how do they impact the overall sustainability of the design? Um, well, certainly um, the sourcing of materials is important. You know, we have, for instance, uh, uh, FSC, which is the Forestry Stewardship Council. Yeah. They rate materials in terms of their sourcing, their manufacture and their impact on forests and things like that. So um, now uh, many of the products today compared to 10, 15 years ago, uh, do have a rating. So you know, it's good to choose from, to select uh, materials that have already uh, been uh, tested and mm. certified. Mm. So that's that's quite uh, easy and should be just due diligence now to mm. do. Yeah. Um, I mean, you were, you were saying just a few minutes ago about it, it can be, if you want to be eco-friendly, you want to be sustainable, it can be 1%, it can be up to 6%. Or something along those lines. What is the um, overall impact uh, of sustainable design on the cost, cost of construction, though? Is it is it's not just a financial cost, is it? There's there's more to it. Would you say? Mm, uh, yeah, I I think um, what I mentioned just now, um, like to get a basic rating, mm. you know, you comply to a certain good level of uh, performance in terms of energy consumption. Uh, you know, wastage, uh, re reduce wastage of, of water, for instance, uh, could be uh, uh, incremental costs on conventional standard construction of maybe 1%. And then when you go to the highest, anything from 6 to 8% extra. Uh, but the payback is there because the energy... The long-term Yeah, payback, the right? energy costs that you save uh, over a period of time you yeah. know, could be... Five and, and that period is decreasing. You know, it used to be like we would show like, oh, you'll get your money back in 10, 15 years and a lot of, uh, you know, clients may not be so um, convinced. Uh, but that period is actually reducing as energy prices going up. Mm. Um, so I, I hope then uh, it's, it's more compelling mm. uh, uh, I mean, to put that extra be, cost initially down. It certainly would be more compelling for me. I mean, that's, that's something that, you know, when, when I look at, buying a new property or, or moving into a new property. It's certainly something I look for in the construction materials, whether or not the building is eco-friendly, uh, you know, is it sustainable long-term, how much would I save long-term? And I think these are the discussions that new buyers in particular, you know, who are really thoughtful, are starting to have these discussions. Whereas before it was just like, what is the cheapest place that we could get that you know meets our budget? Those discussions are, are not necessarily the first thing to talk about now, I feel. 
Um, I agree, Richard. I, I think so. And uh, there's more we can do too. You know, I, I recall also, you know, developers tend to have, I mean, our clients and ourselves also have, you know, tend to like um, dress up, for mm. instance, a unit mm. uh, to sell, you know, with uh, nice interior design, things like that. Uh, I think they should also start to sell equally. Uh, okay, you're going to pay this much uh, compared to um, a conventional uh, apartment that you may buy, you know, somewhere else in the market, um, you will pay that much less. I, I think that should be part of the drive, so yeah. that you know everybody is is talking the same. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and for instance, like when a developer handovers a, a unit, an empty unit, and it's a green-rated building, they should walk in without, like, you know, turning the aircon. And, and he says, see, that's what's it like. When you walk into your, your unit, it's not even hot because we've got good glazing. Because mm-hmm. we've done, we've done a project like that. And I remember when, you know, when, when I was given the keys for that, I, the first thing I noticed was, wow, this is not even warm, which is so, so amazing because yeah. it was a green-rated building. But that was, that was not made known to the purchasers who mm. picked it up. You know, they were just told like, oh, this is a swimming pool and that's the... Uh, so so I, I think um, there's a lot of uh, engagement and um, conversion uh, so that people then will make the choice and mm. they understand uh, what has been put into it. And mm. perhaps then they are more prepared to pay for that extra bit mm. uh, you know, of, of, uh, in the purchase price uh, for buying a unit that you, know, you don't have this hot, hot yeah. Uh, yeah. living room when you, you know, sure. come back into <laughs> your, your unit at the end of the day. Okay, let's take a short break. Uh, folks, I'm in the studio with Lillian Tay, the Vice President of the Veritas mm-hmm. Design Group. Uh, we're talking about uh, sustainability um, and we're talking about uh, the significance of sustainability in design and architecture. We'll be right back after these messages here on BFM 89.9, the business station. Brave, free, Malaysia, BFM. 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome back to Enterprise Biz Bites. Monday, the 6th of November, 12.23, here in the studio. My name is Rich Bradbury. I'm here in the studio, of course, with Lillian Tay, the Vice President of Veritas Design Group. We are discussing about the significance of sustainability in design and architecture, exploring key principles, benefits, and the role it plays in shaping a brighter, more environmentally conscious future. Lillian, just before the break, we were kind of briefly touching on, on some of the certifications, you know, and, and how much influence, I guess, on, on people, whether they, they buy a building or they invest in a building. I, I know that there are a few. There's the uh, Green uh, green Building Index, the GBI, the Green Real Estate, Green RE, Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, the, the LEED. These are all different. To me, these sound like an entirely different language, and I'm sure to people who aren't architects or you know people involved in that business, it might mean nothing. Can you briefly just go through each one and just tell me what's the significance of them and how they differ from one another? Um, well, I think they all have the same uh, objective, which is to ensure uh, new construction as well as um, refurbishment, renewal of uh, buildings, uh, will will be able to bring the performance of buildings up. Yeah. And, and by now, they are considered quite mature systems. GBI formed in 2009 and Greenery about a few years later, I think about four or five years, I don't have the date. Um, so, so the systems are uh, in place in terms of um, 
the calculations needed, mm. uh, usually done by a professional environmental engineer. Uh, of course, architects put the initial framework um, to ensure you know, the right orientation, as I, I mentioned earlier. Um, I, I think both are equally um, good uh, forms of rating. They may have sli slightly different emphasis uh, on different areas. Mm. Um, uh, every green rating has difference. For instance, green mark, uh, which used to be a, a, a form of uh, green rating often quite used in, in Malaysia, even before uh, GBI, because it preceded by four years. Um, they may have different values because of the natural resources of Singapore, for instance. You know, they may not place that much value on distance uh, that from which you procure uh, materials, for instance, because you know they rely a lot on mm. all imported materials, things like that. So uh, it's good to use a local, uh, a local system like GBI and Green Re that are focused more on buildings being built here. Mm. Um, there's a lot of awareness, and, and as mentioned earlier, I think what's needed is to sell it even more so that there are even more buildings that would uh, want to have that uh, due diligence, I would call it. Um, I right. think it should be called due diligence in today's world. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, we have questions prepared, but we had a, a good discussion during the break, and, and I think that's probably more important <laughs> that we talk about that. Let's, let's just put aside the questions that we've got written down for a little while and have a, a, a kind of more interesting conversation about a topic of, I mean, I was telling you, uh, I live in uh, a built a house, um, you know, and it was built maybe 30 or 40 years ago. And um, it's one of those houses that it's a beautiful old house. But the second that I walk in, it feels 10 degrees warmer than outside, right? And I, I guess part of the issue of that is that it was built in a time when things like sustainability were not necessarily top of mind. It was like, mm -hmm. okay, we build a property, we stick an aircon unit, people will be happy to come and, and live in it because they can just click a button and the aircon will come on and the house will be cool. As we move forward and as we talk between us now, there are people like me and younger people who, or whoever who might move into this property. And the first mm. thing that they say is, okay, how, how do we change this building and change this property to make it more sustainable, to make it more comfortable? How do we kind of reassess and have this discussion nowadays? Hmm. Okay, um, for low rise, uh, a lot of it probably comes from the roof. Yeah, uh, um, they need to improve the the insulation in the roof so mm. that less solar, uh, uh, so you know, solar energy, solar heat um, penetration into the roof and into all your living room mm. and living spaces below. So that's a one-time cost. Sure, it will cost some something, uh, but um, I think they need to look at the the uh, the you know you will get your money back really uh, in a matter of maybe. Six or seven years, it's certainly worth investing because the lifespan of the house is 30, 40 years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, the materials are there. You just need to change, uh, you know, take out your roof tiles and put in the insulation and that will do a lot. And then, of course, uh, I think this one is quite widely practiced already. Your light fittings, which uh, uh, you should change to uh, LED, mm -hmm. low low energy consumption. Mm. And the cost of these fittings have already gone down a lot mm. since the time that it was For introduced. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. so you should actually check and make sure everything has been converted in. Into I mean, that. I'm sure this is a conversation that's happening all across Malaysia. You know, people have got these older houses and are unsure why it is so hot. You know, it's it's a simple process, right? 
Uh, yeah, I, I think the the you know like air conditioners um, have uh, there are a lot of uh, you know you you have to select the one, pay a little bit more to get the the high performance ones mm. um, and and the low energy ones, mm. and and you would be able to reap you know I mean you will at least get your money back after a, a few years yeah. certainly you know not take a short term view when just buying the cheapest one that mm-hmm. may not be high performing in terms of energy. Um, you know, energy consumption mm. for these systems. So I think that's easily doable. Um, uh, it's it's more my worry is more on large scale uh, buildings where you know the energy cost is very high. You know, mm. High rise buildings, uh, high rise residential, uh, because you know one decision and it affects five hundred units yeah. of uh, apartments and of on, of homes. Mm. So and that decision doesn't reside with the property owner. It resides at the level of the designers and uh, our clients, the mm. developers. So. Um, that that um, I, I think there is a lot of I mean the fact that they have their own green rating system already shows that there's a lot of uh, understanding and, and acceptance and embracing uh, that sustainable ethic. Mm. Um, so it's a, a lot of um, I think banks also have started I think to consider uh, that your product is going to be green rated. I hope you get even better preferential rates for lending things mm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I. Th- it, it's it's sort of uh, in it's doing good actually. I wouldn't say it isn't doing good. At least in Kuala Lumpur, mm. perhaps uh, there need to be uh, more um, awareness building in our growing cities, like in Johor, for instance. Um, that's getting quite high density. Yeah. Um, and and then to to go to the larger. Um, issue, you know, of uh, urban sprawl, for instance. I mean, this is one topic I know that I would you're, you're like to bring this up. This. <laughs> I mean, I was going to mention this because it, it, it deals with like urban planning, sustainability design principles. Um, yeah, uh, talk yeah. to me about this because I yeah. know you're, 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 high density is something that you're kind of keen on, the idea of it when it's done right. Yes, yeah, yeah. Because I, I think the tools are all in place to address individual buildings. Uh, and we now need to look at the larger urban uh, setting, the urban framework, um, mm. uh, to to make sure that all comes together better. And um, uh, a lot can be done there. Uh, um, I, our work is, uh, a lot of it is in Kuala Lumpur, so we've got a lot of... Uh, Opportunity to see how uh, that can be further enhanced um, in 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 the city mm. um, to prevent greater and greater sprawl. Because in the end, sprawl is the one that that takes away uh, forests, you know, yeah, and takes yeah. away you know, forests, plantations, forests, whatever. If they have plantations or forests, um, so you know, like for instance, one simple thing is everyone look at high density like a big evil. Uh, it it can it doesn't need to be an evil. It can be part of the solution towards um, you know uh, f- um, uh, reducing the loss of green areas, both in the city and and in the sprawl situation. So I, I think um, we need to um, have a better understanding of that larger impact. Um, I I want to mention, for instance, that um, one of the things that always surprises me in some of the research we have done uh, is that um, by now, because we, we do quite a bit of the uh, uh, LRT, MRT planning uh, in, our, in my company, um, and, and um, we, we saw that um, in terms of uh, metro rail, you know, uh, compared to the population of uh, our cities, uh, Kuala Lumpur, uh, compared to, f- say, for instance, Singapore or Korea, 
we've got a lot. By today, we've got a lot of metro rail in place to serve the population that we have. In fact, if you look at uh, kilometres of rail uh, per million population, we have twice as much as Singapore and Seoul. But our ridership is very low. Mm. Uh, and and of, there are many factors. Of course, the first, uh, mile, first last mile, mile last issue. mile issue. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. our ridership is like twenty five percent generally in the city of KL. Maybe in KLCC is thirty percent. That's the latest figures. Um, compared to uh, Seoul, which is like seventy percent, Singapore is like sixty plus percent. Mm. So the issue is not just building more of that now; it's getting people on the trains. And part of that solution is is we cannot be uh, averse to high density. Because um, high-density uh, developments ensure that um, you are closer to the station if you are living in the city, uh, rather than um, you know, if we continue to, to limit uh, density. Uh, so like TODs are also getting a, a, a bad reputation because... TODs a, is what, sorry? What? <laughs> a, um, transit-oriented development okay. where the authorities tend to w- w- want to give some incentives understanding this issue, they do understand that. Uh, but there's a lot of resistance from the public, for instance, saying that, oh, the road's already so narrow and, and it's, um, you know, mm. we shouldn't be allowing more density mm. uh, near the train station. So it, it needs to be looked at very specifically for different locations. Uh, but there's a general aversion to high density. And, and uh, I think uh, we need to look at density uh, as actually one of the solutions, the long-term solutions to creating more walkability and therefore a higher usage of our public transport system. Mm. I I don't know how I I personally feel about that. I mean, I've lived in high density uh, and have felt a little uncomfortable uh, because it felt as though I... And and this is a first world problem, you know, entirely. I like a little bit of space, you know, and I like a little bit of privacy. And I think maybe that's what the aversion to high density is. You you feel as though you're sharing too much with other people. And that, for some people, is an issue. Well, I think in Malaysia, many of the developments uh, do have quite generous uh, common areas, you know, large uh, landscaped Mm. areas uh, for the swimming pools. So that that makes up for it. In fact, if you look at developments, usually they are a bit underutilized. Not sure why. Maybe the occupancy is low or people are just too busy Mm. or or maybe the units tend to be small. So uh, there are fewer families living in it. So we, we need to address some of these issues, but generally the, the amount of uh, common facilities, which is also regulated, the city hall actually uh, determines that you must have that much uh, percentage of depending uh, on how many people open are, areas. Okay. Yeah. All right. So so I think that's addressed. Whereas you may you may be thinking of like London and New York, you know, where you have the legacy of buildings from the 17th, 18th century, uh, which didn't have these facilities, mm. but then they were compensated by having uh, squares and parks, you know. Mm. In every street corner, and that's something that I'm we need to get more, to. I'm more of Beijing and Hong Kong, where I, I've stayed, and it's been like extremely, uh, yeah. For for me, I, I just felt that high density was 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 not something that gelled with me personally. Mm, I well, that that perhaps is a valid concern for perhaps cities uh, that you know faces uh, intense growth in the yeah. 60s, 70s when people were not asserting that need as much as today. Mm. Uh, but I, I hope in Malaysia, as we are now going to that period that we are well aware that these will help to uh, mitigate you know, some of these fears of high density. It's a potential solution, yeah, right? Uh, yeah. yeah, and I think there should be more of such where 
uh, we find some areas uh, where the access to green areas is slow. I mean, in, in a lot of sit- lovely cities like London, you just walk two blocks, there's a nice square where mm. your, you know, your mom's staying with you, can have the morning walks. But here you have to drive to a substantial green area. Mm. So we need small green areas to alleviate public common space, uh, you know, common areas that are accessible to encourage a, a more well-balanced population in the city. Now, you know, you, you will probably have younger population and older people are fearful to live in the city mm. because mm. they won't have that those type of amenities. So there's a lot I think we can do in, in planning to mitigate some of these. And they are not very difficult solutions, uh, making more accessible parks and, and recognise that there's a need uh, instead of you know converting uh, some green area that's owned by the municipality into uh, high density, uh, it should, for instance, be retained as a park, an accessible park for the neighbourhood. Okay. There needs to be more emphasis on that. Or even renting. I always feel like there's so many empty lots in the city that are rented as car parks. We shouldn't allow them to be rented as car parks. They should be made as temporary green areas. It doesn't cost a lot. I entirely agree. It, if I could just name you how many plots in the city on the main thoroughfare that are empty in Jalan mm. Ampang, for instance. Mm. If the city then say, okay, you know, we are going to incentivize you, we will not charge you your, you know, annual uh, uh, assessment if you made it into a park, for instance, a temporary park, even if it's a shelf life of 10 years, if we, you know, it would mitigate um, uh, the city living as, as we know it today on the streets mm. of KL. Mm. So I think that type of more uh, soft, in, you know, soft uh, approach uh, will help a lot to to create um, a, a, a more livable Kuala Lumpur, for instance. Imagine if every, do, yeah. every open car park became a green area. Oh, you know? it, would, it would be so nice. There's so many around town. Hold that thought there. I have to take a short break. I'll be right back. Folks, we'll be right back, of course, here on Enterprise BizBytes on BFM 89.9. Do not go anywhere. I'm here in the studio with... Uh, uh, um, it is Lillian Tay, the Vice President of the Veritas Design Group. We'll be right back. BFM 89.9. Business-filled minds, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, the business station. It is Enterprise Biz Bites. I'm Rich Bradbury. Monday, the 6th of November, 12.44, here in the studio. I'm with Lillian Tay, the VP of Veritas Group. We've been speaking about sustainability in architecture and design. Lillian, I guess, um, before I let you go, I have a few questions, obviously. Let's talk about emerging technology. We're seeing things like, you know, uh, 3D printed buildings and all of this kind of stuff, interesting stuff. Not necessarily some of the greatest ideas, but but what emerging tech and trends are influencing the future of sustainable design and architecture? And how do you think they can be leveraged to create more environmentally responsible and aesthetically pleasing structures? Well, um, I think... uh one important innovation, perhaps it's not 3D printing, uh, is industrialized building systems. I mean, they've been with us since the 60s. They were the first generation, at least. They had their flaws, but I think the the new ones that we've come up with, including those actually um, designed and fabricated here, are certainly uh, a good um, a, a, a good 
the kit of uh, building parts to have in Malaysia today. Mm. And there should be greater use of it, especially for things like uh, public housing uh, or, or sort of a low, lower cost, mid, mid cost housing uh, to reduce uh, construction costs, um, to reduce construction waste, especially yeah. because there's so much less construction waste generated on the site for uh, industrialized building systems mm-hmm. uh, where everything comes all ready to clip in, lock in. Uh, and and that hopefully will also bring down the price of housing uh, for uh, for for everybody in mm. in the entire sector. So I, that's more um, significant to me, I think, than three D printing. That is wonderful if you want to do some form, you know, some organic Something elaborate form. Organic that thing, is, yes, yeah, the, yeah. The opportunities to to do that uh, doesn't arise as often. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's for institutions like museums and. Uh, you know, individual um, headquarters building, showcase buildings, iconic buildings, uh, of which we have very many uh, already. Uh, and um, uh, I, I, I think uh, the 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 impact is is too for for the volume. You know, there's mm. a lots of volume of residential stock that needs to be put out. A lot of people still wanting to buy their first homes and, you know, we've got a growing demographic. So the to me, that's more meaningful, greater embrace of industrialized building systems, um, green buildings, uh, 3D printing. I think um, it's still difficult. Uh, I, I still do not see the sense of of, of making like, uh, you know, cladding panels that every one of them is different. They mm. are buildings, they are, you know, iconic buildings in the world that every piece of panel is different because the curvature is different. It, it makes a beautiful object, but it's not something that every city, every society and can not, afford. Not necessarily sustainable, you know, <laughs> by, the, by, by its very meaning, right? What, what do you think then is the future of sustainable design? Um, well, I think it needs to be uh, taken across from the direct local application to each individual building uh, to um, you know a, a larger ethic uh, you know that's embraced by both purchaser and the producers. You know, producers meaning the designers mm. and the developers, uh, and of course the facilitators, the mm. bankers, and um, city planning. Um, re- requirements. So I, I think we need to make it a, a large ecosystem, not just you know an individual um, you know, rating system that you 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 can opt for. Um, I think we are always quite hesitant to impose it as required. It usually is used as an incentive uh, in 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 the, um, local planning. They they wouldn't usually impose it, um, which is good. Perhaps there should be more incentives. Uh, in terms of uh, development charges, pre- pre- preferential development charges or increase in density, mm. uh, those should continue coming. There is some, um, mm. but there could be more, uh, not just in the city of KL, but uh, outside. Because um, that's the larger macro uh, part of, of uh, creating a more sustainable built environment. Mm. Mm. Uh, we need to look at the, syst- the whole ecosystem, not just the individual building. Mm. And I guess before I let you go then... Um You recently received the uh, PAM Gold Medal uh, 2023, uh, which is the highest honour bestowed uh, by the PAM upon a PAM corporate member. Um, Tell us more about the award and its significance to the winners and the industry and, and of course, to you before I let you go. Okay, while you were framing that, I forgot one point I will have to mention. it. I, I think uh, another measure that we must, before I go to that one, which I also have a point to say, um, is I think one thing we don't realise... Um, is the you, the you know every developer and everybody who 
builds a building, whether you're a bank or, or uh, uh, you know, a, a public listed company, I think one should, they should be more conscious uh, of the social economic impact of the building on the neighbourhood. Yeah. I think it's good if you choose to place your building in a location, for instance, where it will generate a lot of other businesses yeah. um, or, or, or sustain a lot of businesses. You, know? yeah. you don't so necessarily I, want it sticking out like a sore thumb. Perhaps. Yeah, and, yeah, and I feel uh, some of our old neighbourhoods had some of this. Mm. And as we sort of do these large um, uh, mega developments, um, we, we also must be aware that it may be you're decanting very important buildings from older neighbourhoods that need that uh, to sustain you know, the lives of a lot of small businesses mm. around. Mm. So that, that level of understanding about what sustainable planning does to a city, I think is, is quite important. Mm. Um, okay, then I can go to the Come last on, question. Tell me about the award then, yes. Yes, <laughs> yes I'm, I'm very, very honoured and thankful to the Institute of Architects for recognising uh, my work uh, and our work in, in Veritas. Uh, certainly, we are a big team. Uh, you know, I, I have got a lot of designers working with me over the last 30 years. Uh, the award goes to everyone, not just uh, myself, certainly, and my partner, of course, uh, my business partner, who looks at the overall uh, business framework uh, and, and, you know, allows me that time and space to to focus on design. Uh, but I think um, on the larger scale, the importance of that uh, is also, of course, first being the first woman to be recognised. Uh, I think uh, it's, it's, it's good to, to um, hopefully encourage more women to stay the course. Uh, it's a very challenging um, profession for, for women, you know, with their usual uh, duties at home. Uh, so I hope that goes a long way to encourage more because the dropout rate is very high. You know, mm. in school, there's one-to-one, the ratio of male-female, uh, but in the working industry, it's like one-to-four. So that many people drop out, that many women drop out. So I hope that will encourage them to stay the course. And the other point, which is very important, is, um, um, you know, over the 35 years uh, in Malaysia, there's been many, many buildings, many iconic buildings. Uh, and our office actually is opposite the Petronas Towers for 20 years. And we looked and looked and we've learned a lot just even, you know, uh, from understanding these buildings, looking at these buildings. But we waited so long for an opportunity to also build in, in the city centre, you know, the, that's the crown jewel really of, of KL, of KLCC. And I was very glad that, um, you know, finally in 2014, we had an opportunity to also build a tall building, you know, in the company of all these buildings, because they were all done by, uh, you know, very world-class architects, you know, from America, from Australia, from UK. Argentina, um, I believe. Yeah, so I, I think uh, uh, what's like this, uh, recognising um, the, 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 the work that uh, Malaysian professionals do, is very needed. Uh, it's not just about the glory or anything. It's really about uh, also creating jobs. I, I really see our role as um, part of the whole system of creating jobs. Mm. And um, I've looked at these statistics. I was uh, president of uh, the Institute of Architects, and that was my focus, to look at how, um, for instance, um, the, the spread of fees and where it went to. And there was, um, and there is still uh, a lot of fees uh, coming out of the system, uh, going overseas, not just architecture, also engineering, uh, surprisingly large. And, um, and you know, uh, to, if you entrust a Malaysian architect and engineer with doing some of these large buildings, by which we are now very familiar because we've had chance to collaborate with these experts, you know, from 30, 20 years ago, um, 
it goes that little way to creating more jobs, to in- increasing salaries in, in this business that is infamous for relatively low salaries compared to people in IT and mm. banking, for mm. instance. So um, I hope that that I you know that that this recognition allows me to highlight that that um, you know that uh, the talent is there in Malaysia, the the capability and expertise is there, uh, and to see the larger picture, you know, it's not about pride or you know national, uh, you know, sort of uh, nationalism, uh, but it, it does have some great economic justification in terms of job creations mm. and uh, up, you know, uh, increasing salaries. I think that's what I wanted to say. Lillian, thank you so much for your time today. Folks, I've been here in the studio with Lillian Tay, the VP of the Veritas Group, of course. If you missed any part of this uh, show, don't forget you can download the podcast a little bit later on. Wherever you normally get it from, we recommend you use the BFM app. That's available in the Apple App Store or Google Play. Of course, coming up after the 1 o'clock news, it's the Breakfast Grill replay. Do not go anywhere. The Madani government has instituted several policy measures over the past year related to reducing national carbon emissions, including the National Energy Transition Roadmap, the NETR, and the Energy Efficiency and Conservation Bill. Uh, up after the one o'clock news, it was uh, YB Nick Nazmi Nick Ahmad, the Minister of Natural Resources, Environment, and Climate Change, on the Breakfast Grill this morning. That's all coming up after the one o'clock news. My name is Rich Bradbury for BFM 89.9, the business station. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. For more stories of the same kind, Download the BFM app.